Hello, and welcome to the Four Elements of Healthcare podcast, the podcast where we explore healthcare as it relates to the patient's perspective. I'm your host, Vasanth Kankuriam, internist, pediatrician, and mini cupcake baker. Welcome to Episode 10. Today's element of focus is education. The COVID vaccine is a hot topic in the news, and while there's a lot of good information going around, there's also a good amount of skepticism and concern. As I myself continue to learn about this novel vaccine, I invited Dr. Lorena Polo to join us on the show to share some details about the COVID vaccine and vaccines in general. Dr. Polo completed her undergraduate studies focused on immunology and went on to become a physician who specializes in infectious diseases. Thanks for joining us, Lorena. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Awesome. So let's begin with our first question, right? So, um, you know, immunity is such a complex thing. And and I think one of the biggest questions um, a lot of us physicians face uh, when we are are talking about vaccinations is, you know, why do we vaccinate, right? And so I think, you know, in the scientific world, we talk about things like natural infection um, inducing immunity versus getting immunity from vaccinations. And we know that some vaccines like measles, for example, has less immunity from the vaccine compared to getting the actual disease. And yet other vaccinations like tetanus and HPV and and hemophilus Mm -hmm. influenza actually give you better immunity from the vaccine than than the actual disease. So what is the risk benefit between getting the infection and getting natural immunity versus vaccination? Right. So I think this is uh, an excellent question, and it's quite relevant at this time where we see, especially on the news, um, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine on different headlines. I think it's always a good idea to go back to the um, characteristics of the specific infection that we're dealing with. So measles, right? Getting measles when you're five years old can provide protection till you're 85 years old. The measles vaccine or the MMR vaccine, although the immunity can potentially wane over time, it's still high enough to provide protection. And there's always research trying to close that gap between the protection provided by natural immunity versus vaccination. But when looking at the risk-benefit ratio in this particular infection, we look at potential complications that you may get from the infection. Um, With measles, we worry about viral pneumonia. We worry about something called encephalomyelitis, which can be deadly. And so it's very clear that that risk-benefit ratio weighs heavily on the vaccination side. Similarly, for COVID-19 infection, for instance, I think at this time we have gathered considerable data in terms of the different stages of infection, how it presents, the severity of the infection itself. We know that in some cases it can be mild infection, in some other cases it can present like pneumonia, in other cases it can be very severe infection, including having a very overwhelming immune response with some patients requiring respiratory support and so on. And one can quickly realize that wide spectrum of presentation. Thus, in this situation, allowing natural immunity to provide protection would simply be too risky. There could be too many unnecessary deaths that may occur. Um, and also, from a diff- we're looking at it from a different perspective as well, with something such as the COVID-19 virus or the coronavirus, there's also a potential of the virus becoming more virulent. We know that um, when uh, this coronavirus started, it was a highly virulent, highly transmissible virus. So if we can envision a situation where there's resistance, uh, there's no resistance to transmission, meaning that we're allowing everyone to have um, this natural 
natural infection to provide protection. This highly virulent virus, they don't necessarily die with a host, but it continues to circulate. And so you can envision that situation where the virus could potentially become even more virulent if that were to happen. Got it. Interesting. And so, you know, one of the questions, you know, that we always talk about when we, you know, with, with vaccinations is, is side effects, right? And a few years ago, you know, in 2014, I went to a pediatrics conference and there were some really interesting discussions on vaccines and, and what are considered reported side effects. And one interesting piece of information that I had learned um, with a particular vaccine was that anything that happened 42 days after that vaccine was administered would, had to be reported on that package insert, whether or not there was medical correlation, mm -hmm. right? And the funny part was that, you know, the original varicella vaccine apparently had broken leg listed as one of the, the side effects. So right. you know, can you share like some insights with the, you know, for the general public at how do we decide whether a side effect is related to a vaccine or not? And particularly if the package inserts have a lot of information of anything that happens, how do we begin to create that association? Right. That's an excellent, excellent question. And uh, this becomes particularly important, as you mentioned, when we talk about the safety profile of a vaccine. And so, especially with the new vaccines, there's always initially um, independent committees that review um, any of this reported um, side effects to see if it's related to the vaccine. But also going forward, actually, the United States has one of the most advanced systems in the world for tracking vaccine safety. So there's different systems that provide different types of data for researchers to analyze. Um, and that sort of can provide a full picture in terms of vaccine safety. So one of it is the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is sort of an early warning system is managed by the CDC and the FDA that's designed to find possible vaccine safety issues. So this one um, in this system, Anyone from patients, healthcare professionals, vaccine companies can report any side effects that happen after a patient received a vaccine. So some of it could be related to vaccination, but as you mentioned, others might happen by coincidence. So they might happen by chance. And so the system helps to track any patterns that could potentially mean that there is a, a vaccine safety issue that needs further evaluation. There's another system, it's called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, and that's a collaboration between the CDC and other healthcare organizations. And this one uses medical records as opposed to self-reports to be able to compare the data and find if a reported side effect is linked to a vaccine. The FDA also has its own national system for monitoring medical products after they're licensed, and it's called uh, post licensure rapid immunization safety monitoring system. And this looks at the health insurance claims to identify if there is a link there between a reported side effect and safety issues for licensed vaccines. So as you can see, there's many, many different systems that are put in place that sort of provide different types of data um, to be able to make that assessment whether something, a side effect is related to the vaccine or not. Interesting. And it sounds like these systems are evolving, right, as more and more technologies develop and as more Absolutely. and more ways of gathering information um, mm -hmm. are available. And, right. and let's, you know, one of the things, you know, when we talk about side effects, there's always, you know, concerns about vaccine additives, right? And let's talk a little bit about mercury and formaldehyde. And, you know, as I was looking through some of these notes from my, my conference, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, which is why I had taken 
so many notes. Um, you know, I learned that everything we drink has some degree of, you know, methylmercury, you know, that infant formula and breast milk uh, actually has more methylmercury in it than you get from the actual uh, vaccine. And that even take formaldehyde, right? The formaldehyde that we eat from a banana is more than what's in a vaccine. So we're exposed to these things all around us. Um, and yet there's been a lot of concerns about it. Um, can you respond to that? Right, you're absolutely correct. We're exposed to these elements all around us. And I think sort of uh, there, there's a fundamental difference or the way to look at it is to distinguish between methylmercury and something called thimerosal, which is what you find usually in vaccines that's used as a preservative. And so methylmercury, it's what you find in the environment. Uh, it can be part of the environment, specific foods, as you mentioned, formula, also in breast milk, you can find it in certain fish. And when we think about it, we usually think about the cumulative risk, the lifetime risk of an individual. And in the United States, there's many federal regu regulations that have been put in place over many years to sort of minimize or reduce the amount of methylmercury that you find in the environment and in certain foods. On the other hand, hand, thimerosal, it's a compound that's used in vaccines. And um, this one, when taken by the body, is actually broken down to something called ethylmercury, which is cleared from the blood much, much quicker than methylmercury, which is what you find in the environment. And in addition to that, there's been multiple studies that have shown there's not an increased risk of the individuals who receive vaccines that contain this thimerosal product. Um, there's not an increased risk to the individual. If anything, the ethylmercury is cleared by the body or by the blood quicker than what you normally find, for example, what you get from food or the environment. Got it. And, and so, you know, let's talk a little bit about... Um you know, types of vaccines, right? And we sort of touched on some of the components of them, but there's three general sort of categories or buckets of vaccines, right? We've got our live vaccines, um, and then we've got inactivated vaccines, which um, are really particles of the vaccine. But then the COVID vaccine, which is really mm -hmm. sort of the crux of our talk today, is a totally new type of vaccine. It's, it's an mRNA vaccine. So can you just broadly at a very high level you know, explain to our listeners, what is the difference between these vaccines that we've traditionally had, which are, you know, antigen-based vaccines or live vaccines, um, and this new, totally um, innovative type of vaccine called the, the an, an mRNA type of vaccine? Right. So that's a great question. And the mRNA vaccines uh, are uh, a new platform of vaccines that we haven't seen before. Um, with the, the typical vaccines that we think of, the live vaccines or the inactivated vaccines, is usually a portion of the or an act, inactivated portion of the pathogen that's introduced in the body, and it prompts our immune system to produce um, something called neutralizing antibodies to be able to um, fight the infection if we have a second occurrence uh, with that pathogen or with uh, that bacteria or virus in the, uh, throughout our lifetime. In contrast to that, mRNA vaccines are, uh, contain a, a piece of the genetic material of the virus. In this particular case with the COVID vaccines, it contains a genetic material that's called the spike protein or to produce the spike protein of the virus, which is um, what's found or what's important in the viral attachment and infection um, with COVID-19 virus. And so being able to introduce this mRNA into um, the host, it allows our own cells 
to produce the spike protein. And once the spike protein is produced, our body um, sort of, the immune system sort of wakes up and starts producing this neutralizing antibodies, which eventually will help to um, uh, fight infection. Very interesting. And it's, it's sort of almost, um, you know, using some of your body's own skills mm -hmm. and abilities to mimic um, what it might be like to have exposure to that particular protein. Is that, does that sound right? Right. That's absolutely correct. So you're not introducing the actual spike protein of the virus directly, but you're introducing a piece of genetic material so that your own cells can make that spike protein and be able to mount that immune response, be able to produce the antibodies, which provide uh, protection, immune protection. And it sounds like even when we talk about immunity, the, the data, as we're seeing, um, is constantly evolving, right? For, for a while, mm -hmm. I think the, the primary discussion was, you know, that these antibodies don't, um, you know, last a, a very long time and, uh, you know, that you've got a few months. But I think as we're learning more and more about it, there's more data that's coming out that, you know, we've got other types of cells in the body, like T cells and, and memory B cells that actually might confer immunity uh, mm -hmm. you know, even if the antibodies go down because your body has sort of recognized this bug before and we can mount a response much quicker. So uh, it sounds like it's a constantly evolving process and that, you know, even the information we learned earlier this year about, you know, what is immunity, what is not, it sounds like that's also changing. And, you know, even the definition of immunity might not be purely related to antibodies. Mm -hmm. Is that is that right? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And especially when we talk about something like coronaviruses in general, we know from prior research that the level of the neutralizing antibodies for this uh, family of coronaviruses in general it usually disappears within a couple of months, maximum a year. But what you may be left with, it's, uh, as you mentioned, these T cells or memory B cells that sort of store this memory of prior infection. And if the individual comes into contact with the infection again, they will potentially have the ability to produce the neutralizing antibodies again. And that's sort of what the vaccines as well will try to move towards. And, and it sounds like, you know, it, it, there are some case reports of, you know, getting a second uh, COVID infection, and then there are some, um, you know, where we haven't seen it as much, but it, it sounds like it, in, to some degree, it might be related to how severe your symptoms were before um, mm -hmm. as to how, how much of a response your body is able to produce. Is that consistent with what you've been hearing as well? Right. So that's a great question, and it's an area of constant research as well. There is some thought that in some individuals that experience severe disease where you have a systemic immune response to the infection, those individuals may produce a uh, stronger antibody response uh, and have a stronger protection so that the next time around they may have maybe a mild infection to being asymptomatic, whereas the individuals that initially had maybe only an upper respiratory uh, disease where there was no involvement of systemic immunity, only local immunity in the upper airways, um, then those individuals could potentially be at risk for having uh, severe disease the second time around. But as I mentioned, this is an area of constant research. And, you know, when we talk about the COVID vaccine, right, there's, there's such a uh, mix of emotions. On one hand, there's a mix of excitement because we've never had an mRNA vaccine 
before and it's been developed, um, you know, very quickly. And it sounds like, you know, part of that is the mRNA type of vaccine can be developed quicker than some of the other ones. And yet there's a mix of, you know, fear because this is such a new thing Mm -hmm. um, and and it's newer technology. And so, um, you know, part of the question, you know, there's something that we've seen a lot of um, recently is, you know, emergency use authorization, you know, for COVID testing. When when listeners hear that, you know, FDA or, or whoever has approved uh, emergency use authorization for a particular product. What does that mean for the lay public? Right. So in an emergency situation, such as a pandemic, for instance, it may not be possible to have all the evidence that the FDA would usually have before approving a drug or a vaccine. Um, and if there is a declared state of emergency, and this doesn't happen outside of an emergency situation, the FDA can actually make that judgment whether it's worth releasing something for use, even without having all the evidence to establish the effectiveness and the safety. So one of the minimum requirements for issuing this EUA or emergency use authorization is that the benefits must outweigh the risks. So that's the minimum requirement. For the COVID-19 vaccine specifically to receive an EUA, the FDA has released specific guidance and for effectiveness that includes at least a 50% reduction in symptomatic infection. And when we look back at, at what, what the vaccines that were, uh, that, that became sort of uh, public the last couple of weeks, we saw a, an efficacy of 90 and 95%, which is quite exciting. And um, an, another sort of um, uh, uh, requirement that the FDA has put forth for an EUA for COVID-19 vaccine is to have a full median follow-up time of two months, so to see how this patient do uh, two months following the vaccine. Also, the FDA is expected to consult with a, a sort of an independent advisory committee before releasing this EUA decision. So naturally, there's a lot of skepticism because we're dealing with a new platform um, with this mRNA vaccines. But I think from a physician point of view, this can be overcome by transparency and direct messaging. I think explaining to the patients the risk-benefit ratio and how it may heavily on the vaccine side. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's a group of individuals that maybe due to misinformation may have some um, hesitancy to getting the vaccine, but being able to educate the patients on the facts um, that we know, I think um, I've always found that to be very helpful. Another thing for physicians and providers, I think, is looking at these clinical trials with, um, uh, with a critical eye and sort of examining the types of patients that were participating in this trial. We're looking for trials that have a lot of diversity in the participants, so such as, for instance, a lot of individuals above the age of 65 or individuals with chronic medical conditions, for instance, where the burden of COVID disease was the highest, and also individuals from underrepresented ethnic populations, so the Black and Latino community individuals, um, we should look at these trials with a very critical eye and just to make sure that all of these groups um, are well represented. Because being able to share this information with patients, I think it can foster a greater sort of um, public trust in the vaccines if all of them are well represented. And I think you bring up a really good point because there's a whole element of risk benefit, right? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, when we, in medicine, a lot of what we do, 
um, is talking about, you know, here is a guideline, here is a risk, um, and, and here is a benefit of it. And what does that ratio look like on an individual level? And even if you take the studies, you bring up a great point, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at a study, it's not just what was a conclusion, but who participated in the study, right. you know, what were they like? And then you have to take that, that study data and say, does this data apply to that person in front of me, right? And if you have a study that um, is all women, they're all men, or all mm-hmm. Caucasian, or all African American, or Latino, and then you have a patient who doesn't fit necessarily the population that was studied, it makes right. you need to pause and say, can I apply the lesson learned from this particular mm-hmm. study to the person in front of me in having that discussion? And I think that is, is very important to call out and very important for the general public to know um, to be able to sort of challenge their their doctors and providers right. to say, hey, you're making this recommendation, but does this apply to me based on the data you've gathered? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think, um, you know, the, it's, it's a hot topic, you know, talking about um, the COVID vaccine, but also talking about the thought process that goes behind um, you know, the decisions, but also the individualized recommendations. So thank you so much for joining us in this conversation today. Um, and I, I hope our viewers and listeners got um, some really good information from this. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap. Signing off until our next episode. Have a safe and healthy Thanksgiving and stay tuned as we revolutionize primary care together.